Hello, welcome to Stump, the Sedan's MCR podcast. My name is Guillaume Program, and my aim is to make the work class research done by graduate students at Sedan's College Oxford accessible to anyone and everyone without prior knowledge of the subject. This is our second episode with this week's guest, Karina Darbinian. The first episode was last week and is easily available on all podcast platforms if you haven't listened to it. As a reminder, in case you didn't have a chance to listen to last week's pod, Karina is currently studying for a Master's in International Health and Tropical Medicine at Oxford. She is a medic from Russia. She did all her medical studies in Russia. She specialized in infectious diseases. And she actually held her first job in Moscow's largest hospital, working primarily with people who had HIV and often some form of addiction. So her current degree and this first job in Moscow are all covered in last week's episode. And it is absolutely fascinating. We go through a lot in terms of the rewards and challenges of being a doctor and especially specializing in the field that Karina specialized in. And we stopped at the point of Karina's life where she decides to leave this job in Moscow's largest hospital in order to go volunteer in a rural clinic in Guatemala, paving the way for her current degree at Oxford. And it is at this point in the conversation that our conversation resumes. During your year, I think it was before your first job, it was uh, in the residency, but correct me if I'm wrong, you heard about this NGO called Health and Help, founded by two young Russian women. Could you present what they do broadly, what the NGO is about? At first, it started with a Russian girl from a city of Ufa. She's an infectious diseases specialist. And she went to study tropical medicine in Belgium. And then she went on to, into this humanitarian mission to Haiti, Honduras, and then to Guatemala. And eventually, she realized that she wanted to fund her own clinics. It started with her first clinic in Guatemala, in the mountains, in a pretty remote area. It's thir- like it's about 30, 40 minutes down the hill, like down the mountain to the city, to the town, which is called Momostenango. And it's a village inhabited by indigenous people, uh, by Maya people. And they're generally very poor. They have a lot of children. They don't use any contraception. They have very poor access to healthcare. And as they're indigenous, uh, a lot of the times, like they're kind of stigma around them so they can get less health care than other people. So she decided, she herself decided that she wanted to found a clinic there. So she went back to Russia and she met this other girl and they decided they can do it together. So this other girl, she uh, started like a d- donation thing on, I think it was Boomstarter or something else. So they got a million of rubles which is something like 10,000 pounds. And uh, this was their first money that they put into construction. They found architects, volunteers, who agreed to make a project of the clinic like for free. Then they went to Guatemala and like found volunteers there from the population, from the village. And they built this clinic in less than a year. And like, it's a 
pretty nice building having everything like electricity, water, and they mainly they get medications from donations from the United States, from Russia. So they also have some bigger donors, smaller donors, and like uh, just people give them money and they buy medications and they're like willing to help people in these areas. People appreciate this help a lot. Uh, they come to the clinic and almost for free, they get a consultation and they get medications as well. So then they don't need to go and buy themselves because in, in, like in Guatemala, the situation is pretty bad. And people started like talking and talking and talking. So now more and more people are coming from other villages. Like there are a few people who are traveling, let's say six or seven hours once a month in order to get this consultation and get their medications for, let's say, diabetes. But once this uh, clinic started functioning very well, they decided to build another one and they built their second clinic in Nicaragua. So now they have two clinics. And people who go and work there also are also volunteers. You yourself ended up going volunteering for them after a year in your, in your job in Moscow. What motivated you to leave Moscow's biggest hospital to go to rural first Guatemala and then Nicaragua? I started learning Spanish when I was around 14, but I only, start, I only learned it for maybe a year and a half. Then for many years, I didn't have a chance to practice it at all so I really wanted to speak to be able to speak Spanish and uh, this was my to be honest this was my first intention my second intention was to learn how to treat people without having any lab diagnostics without having like MRI CT without having any other con like consultants like uh, being able to call me like I need a surgeon or like I need a cardiologist just doing everything on your own being in this rural setting when you are the only person who might possibly help so uh, I found it very interesting like like a, a bit challenging but very interesting like I had to read through the books of like internal medicine that I learned uh, during my university years but then after you specialize in something you usually tend to forget a lot of things so I had to kind of do some revisions of different medications, their side effects, dosage, and things like that. So yeah, it was just a big challenge for me, but also living in a different culture. I love traveling, so it was super interesting for me to see how different the world can be. And I also think that from time to time, while living in developed countries, we actually have to do this with ourselves, kind of like go somewhere uh, which is like, so different and see how people can live, how they can live with small amount of money, with not having nice houses, with not having nice clothes, with not having all these gadgets. Sometimes it's like an awakening. Yeah, like you go and you see that you have everything like other people want to have and you're still feeling unhappy. And this gives you like joy when you go back. Like I have everything. I shouldn't complain. So I think that we have to expose ourselves to this kind of experience from time to time. And you've touched upon it already a bit, but in terms of practicing medicine, I mean, I'm assuming it's a world of difference between Moscow's largest hospital. And I, I insist on that. I've said that already. But the, la the largest hospital in one of the most important capital in the world, and then suddenly a, a clinic in rural Nicaragua. How did you... What did you find was most different and how did you adapt to that difference? 
the clinic there, it's an outpatient clinic. So it's not the place where you would have people overnight. They just come, get a consultation, get their medication and leave. Most of the times people, ha uh, people in Guatemala and Nicaragua, they came with problems like diabetes, like hypertension. Also in these countries, people uh, do really hard work like in the fields or fishing. So they have problems with their backs they're like necks with all the articulation. So they have a lot of pain here and there. Also in this clinics, you don't have like a lot. You can measure level of glucose. You can take like blood pressure, pulse, just like uh, use your stethoscope, but like basically that's it. You can't do much. And sometimes you have to make a guess and hope that this was the right guess and then ask a person to come next time so you can check whether the medication helped or not. Other times you have to accept that you can't help in this particular situation and be willing to say, okay, now I can't help you. I'm very sorry, but you should go to a bigger hospital. So this is a different type of situation. Like in Moscow, I never had this. I never had to say, like, we can't do this. Like, you have to go there. Most of the times I could do something else. I could ask for help from others. I could call other doctors. I could ask for various consultations. What were, I mean, I'm assuming you saw a diversity of conditions there. Were there, were there some conditions that you saw more often than others, some more prevalent? Yeah. So uh, diabetes, and definitely it is connected with their poor diet. In these countries, people don't really have a lot of money. Most of the times they eat what they have. So they eat a lot of corn, they eat a lot of rice, they eat a lot of beans. They don't really have a lot of meat. Uh, most of the times they would eat chicken. Sometimes they have some homemade cheese. But generally this is a very, this is a diet full of carbs and not much proteins. So also they have this kind of, I don't know whether it's European or American, I don't know, this Western influence. So they consume a lot of soft drinks and like chips. And this is really crazy because you have these villages where they don't have anything, they don't have light, they don't have water. And they have this like very, very small, tiny shops where they sell, let's say, rice, beans, and then they have chips and soft drinks. And that's it. And like people in the village, they, they're not very, very well educated because also in these countries, they don't have access to education and they don't really know how harmful it is for their health to consume these products. So diabetes is very common and a lot of people are overweight uh, and arterial hypertension is also a very common problem. It seems to be very much related to social factors and economic factors and it, it goes beyond, beyond just pure medicine or at least it's a medicine yeah. that takes into account social uh, sure, it is. It's called structural violence. Yeah, that's, that's the term we learned in our MSc. So th this is the term which uh, refers to the fact that it's not just people choosing to do that, to do this with their own bodies. It's not like they choose to eat this food. It's what their governments do with them. It's like they don't have this choice. First of all, because they're not very well educated. Secondly, because they don't have this access to healthcare when they would be explained what to do and what not to do. Thirdly, because they don't have well-paid jobs and they don't have enough money in order to buy better food. So 
this is all connected to the way society functions. It's, it's not just this particular person making the silly choices and buying like chips instead of buying veggies, but veggies are just much more expensive. So it is, it is very interesting, but at the same time, it's very sad for a medical practitioner because you go there, you try to help, but at some point you realize that that's it, like you can't do more. You advise a person with diabetes not to eat this, this, and this, and this, but then you realize that if this person is not eating this food, then there is nothing for this person to eat. There is nothing. Like, it's not like they can go and buy whatever you tell them to buy because they don't have money. So you have to be realistic and try to change their diet, but in a way that they still have something to eat. And you were there during the COVID-19, when COVID-19 started, right? Yeah. How, how was that? Was, what, what, was the country badly hit? Was it less hit than other countries? How, how was it generally to be there? It's really difficult to say because for a long period of time, Nicaragua denied that they had COVID. And while all other countries had like thousands of cases that they claimed they had something like eight. <laughs> so uh, let's say El Salvador had like 3,000 and Nicaragua would be like, we have eight. That's it. We don't have any COVID. So they, the government didn't really take measures. People themselves had to take measures. And as they don't really trust their government too much, and they know that in case they're seriously ill, they can't get help, they were the ones like, tr like trying to do their best. So they started wearing masks uh, before somebody told them to do that. They started shutting down their own businesses before their government told them to do so. And this was very fascinating for me because... In Russia, it was the opposite way. Like government said everything, but people would be like, oh no, it doesn't exist. So it was a very different approach. People were generally very, very aware and like afraid of getting COVID. But in the village where I lived, uh, nobody had it. And I don't think whether they have it now, but as it is very, very far from, from cities, people sometimes go to the cities, but not very frequently. So they're like so far and they kind of survive on their own, like doing fishing and like growing their own corn. Do you feel it, this whole experience made you a more complete doctor? Um, I, I think so. I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. Again, I think this experience helped me again to go back to this humanity part of my job. Because uh, while working in this big hospital, I didn't really have much time to talk to patients. I had like a lot of patients and a pretty short day. And I also had to fill in a lot of papers, like just do a lot of paper, silly paper job. So in Guatemala and Nicaragua, you just have as much time as you want. So if you want to talk for 30 minutes, you do. Also, it made it a bit difficult uh, because I spoke different language. So for me, Spanish is not my native language. And also, I'm not as good in Spanish as I would want to be. So sometimes it would take some time in order to understand what the patient was actually saying. So I would ask more questions and I would try to rephrase these questions a few times. But this led to better understanding, not just like language understanding but cultural because they had time to explain what they wanted to explain they had time to say what they wanted to say so it's not just uh getting medication it's almost like a bit of psychological work that we did there 
again, when you work in a big hospital, you just never have time for that. So I think this kind of brought me back to an idea that ideal medicine still includes this kind of interaction between a doctor and a patient. And if you have this opportunity to talk more, you should use it. Because you can, again, you can get a lot of energy from this kind of talks. Well, it's funny because when we talk to you, it seems like everything is really, really coherent. Everything makes sense. You like infectious diseases. You were interested in MSF and you specialize in infectious diseases. And then you went to volunteer in Guatemala and now you do a master's that's uh, related and that takes into account the broader social aspects of medicine. But you also said that you didn't have sort of a great defined plan at the start. Things seem to just fall into place naturally. Would you say that's true? And then do you know what you want to do with that master's or do you just think that it's naturally going to fall into place after you finish it? Yeah, that's true. Everything, everything happened naturally. And this scholarship that I got at Oxford was, was a big surprise. It wasn't like my plan to study at Oxford. And to be honest, I wanted to study in a different place and Oxford just happened to me and I got scholarship there. I didn't have like, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> so it happened to me. And then I decided that uh, you just ha- I, I just had to take this kind of opportunity. You know, you don't say no to Oxford if you get a scholarship, like a full cover scholarship. So, um, To be honest, everything I'm learning now is pretty new to me. Like this knowledge on healthcare, like management and like uh, policy making is very new to me. And most of the times I think I'm just a simple doctor. I want to like to treat patients. Uh, This is what I have to do in my life. But other times I'd be thinking if I get this new knowledge, like I have to use it. If If I know how to do things better, I have to... Uh, use it to make things better not just to talk about it so I don't have a real plan of how I'm going to imply this knowledge in real life in my own country for now but again this world is so unstable nowadays and like due to COVID due to other things so I kind of hope that again my my life will lead me the way it should so I will like the the path will just happen without me making these big plans. So I do hope to imply eventually this master's degree in, in real life. Well, thank you very much for your time. That was absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much. Thank you, Guillaume. If you're listening, make sure you keep updated with Stamp, the Sinan's MCR podcast, available on all the main podcast platforms, as well as on the Sinan's MCR website, that's Sinan's MCR org.uk you can follow us on social media we have a twitter and instagram account at stamp podcast uh, where you can be updated with the next episodes if you like the podcast make sure you subscribe on whatever platforms you're listening uh, make sure you share it with your friends and with whoever might like it and it's also time for me to give the credit due credit for joe everington for the music of this podcast Make sure you join us next week. We will be talking with Farbod Ahlagi about moral philosophy, metaphysics, for again the first of a series of two episodes. Thank you very much. <laughs>